You're now listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast, broadcasting from sunny Orange County, California. Filmmaker, journalist, and film historian, Paul Booth. Aloha. Welcome to Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. So happy to be here today. You guys know this is my zone, what I live for, why I wake up each day. That was really overdramatic, but I'm jazzed because we're here today with cinematographer Nancy Schreiber, ASC. She's an Emmy nominee for the film Celluloid Closet, the documentary. Today we're here to, we'll discuss a number of things, but we're here to discuss the Star series P-Valley. Um, Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm just delighted to be here. Appreciate it very much. Can you say delighted more dramatically? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> P-Valley. The All right, so it's a really cool show on stars. It is not for, I, I don't know, I guess I would say it's R-rated. So I want to let people know that it is not just for anyone. Uh, but uh, Nancy, in, in your description, why don't you tell us what it's about? And you're right. Uh, P-Valley is definitely not G-rated. Um, the name comes from the creator Katori Hall's play, Pussy Valley, and stars just didn't want to put the whole name up there. Uh, and yet we did film some nudity, and uh, it's set in a black-owned... Uh, down in the hill at the heel strip club in the Mississippi Delta while we were filming in Atlanta because there are such great tax incentives in Georgia. And uh, we uh, built the club, but we also used much of parts of Atlanta to be this little town on the Mississippi that's seen better days. And uh, the proprietor, uh, shall we say, is gender fluid, Uncle Clifford, although Uncle Clifford goes by the pronoun she, and had the most fabulous wardrobe. And her women, dancers, are not uh, made fun of. They are captured with dignity and really delving into their personal home stories. Some have abuse at the home. Some are trying to make enough money to get out of dancing. And the, the most important thing is there's a lot of respect. Uh, the club, the pink, had been a juke joint that Uncle Clifford's grandmother had owned years ago. And the and the town is trying to come back, but it's really down and out. And uh, the one place that women can make a living is at the pink. And these women are athletes. It was important not to exploit their bodies because they're wearing very little and beautiful costumes also. And uh, although we did tackle weighty themes like domestic abuse, racism, misogyny. We wanted to focus on these lives in a very 
meaningful way where we really got into their lives, their heads, and uh, saw their strengths. So it was uh, very important not to exploit with the camera. With this show, what the greatest thing you did, I think, is what you just said, that I had never seen something where it was just so obvious that there wasn't the male gaze. So now, does this come from having natural discussion and awareness, or was this just mostly female directors along with you? How does that, how do you actually remove it? That's a wonderful question, Paul. Uh, before any of us got hired, Katori had a discussion with us about the female gaze, which has been discussed. Uh, there was a woman who wrote an article about it, Laura Mulvey, I think in, it was a number of decades ago. And uh, it was important for Katori to learn what we each thought of the female gaze. I'm talking about uh, the other cinematographer I shared my duties with, Richard VLA, the production designer, uh, <clears throat> and uh, he had come out of uh, John Waters and was really incredible, um, and uh, our costume designer. So everyone basically that was hired by Katori was questioned about the male versus female gaze. And it was particularly relevant for me as a cinematographer and my operators, one male, one female, that the camera not linger on body parts that weren't covered. We did not shy away from showing nudity, but we never lingered. We didn't have these wide lenses right into women's crotches and breasts. We were very respectful without it uh, hiding anything. The people didn't have clothes on for the most part in there. The back rooms were topless. They also, there was male nudity. So uh, it was very equal. And uh, we just were very careful to be respectful and to show the athleticism, the strength that these women had. And they shine on the pole. They're confident. And it's absolutely breathtaking to watch. Oh, yes. the uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. That was one of the sequences that made me think, up that question I just gave you because I was just like there's really this gymnastic and a friend of mine was a stripper and I one time went to see her at work and I was just like she could do what you guys were showing and I just used to talk to her about her she had this such a crazy training regimen and like you're saying the, the athleticism of it uh, so I liked that you guys did that now you mentioned that you filmed in Atlanta Yes. And I have been to the Mississippi Delta. Did you go there for research? Because I think you captured how just danky that place can be. I wish that we had been able to. We did not go, but we certainly researched. There were a lot of photos. We looked at every 
film, uh, news clip, and the research was really extraordinarily deep. And um, also our production designer, Beth, um, Jeffrey Pratt Gordon, did a lot of research before the rest of us were hired. And uh, so we were definitely immersed in it. And uh, our first director, who I was happy to work with, it was the first episode, Karina Evans, made a massive lookbook, hundreds of images, and we blew them up large and put them all over the office. And when we weren't meeting, I would just sit there and look at these images, and they related to kind of lens or color framing as well as what the Mississippi Delta area looked like. And so there's a big contrast between the glitz and glamour of the club versus this town where people are trying to survive. And I do also want to mention that this club, although it looked glamorous, was what Uncle Clifford could afford from like a Home Depot. So the lights and the strip lights uh, that lined steps. We made sure that we were not showing any fancy moving lights like one would have now in the fancier strip clubs. Um, Tori made us do a show and tell of the lights. And although we did use modern-day LEDs, we were able to house our units in older stage lighting that anybody could get uh, cheaply. So uh, our Lecos were old stage Lecos, but they had our fancy LEDs that we could program any color we wanted inside, and just park hands. We did have a few of the fancy moving lights, but we were not allowed to use them to move as we filmed a dance. But if for some reason some blocking should change and we didn't have time to get a ladder up to the stage, we couldn't get a lift in there because the stage was so high, uh, we would be able to spin one of these lights that pans and tilts itself to where we were going to be and then turn it off and uh, again have the authenticity of a club that Uncle Clifford has just scraped together what she could to make it a fantasy world so different from not only where the women live normally but all the customers as well who come there to escape whatever troubles they have. The way you just broke that down, I was really, I mean, I know obviously it's so hard to think somebody's actually been to the Delta, right? Because you end up in the Delta if you're like really into the blues. Otherwise, I don't know anybody else that goes there. And because I was feeling that, I was kind of torn between was like, this a place that used to be nice and just went downhill? Is it a place that's just, you're not supposed to be paying attention to it by am? You talked about those little stage lights. How hard is it to creating lighting for a performance art 
And then you also have to be lighting for the characters that are 10 feet away. How does that, where a light is, where it's not? Is it just experience? Is it just practicality with your, I mean, were you shooting digital or film? We were definitely shooting digital, uh, especially it was first season stars. It was not a huge budget. Um, HBO is probably the only network still shooting celluloid film. Their budgets are enormous. And they don't always shoot film, but they still do. Um, I think it's experience and... Uh, we had to light the audience, but not too much. Uh, we did have the whole grid. There was a grid overhead, and uh, yet we had ceilings in part of the club, so we could do a low angle and look up and not see film lights. So that was important to create the illusion that it was not on a sound stage. Um, we also had an exterior that was about a mile away. Uh, we had been looking a really long time. What could this pink club look like? And we were filming the interior on brand new sound stages at Tyler Perry's studios. Um, and this old dilapidated building was pretty much on the up outskirts of Tyler Perry's huge, formerly, uh, it was a uh, army base, this massive, I don't know how many acres it is, but it's enormous. And this dilapidated building, we had to bring in mold remediation teams. It was deadly. And it's hard to believe we were able to clean it up and make it the exterior. And what's really funny about it, uh, when we started, which was in March of 2019, we finished in July, there was a housing building complex going up all around us. And near the end of our filming, we had to get a way to block these modern, horrible suburban houses. Uh, and a couple times we got a big tractor trailer just to block our view and we had to be careful uh, where we were pointing our lens because we were dodging all these modern houses. Oh my God. It was crazy and that just happened in a few months. I love it. I mean, that must have been a production nightmare, but... Yeah, it was. You know, and I love too the idea that you were shooting in a studio built off of family content. Yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> I would have never thought this is a Tyler Perry studio show. Well, it was a rental, you know, he, right. he does his own. Uh, and he brought in, there was an old diner on the property, a trailer park where we did film. We had to rent from Tyler Perry studios, every inch of dirt we filmed. Right. Uh, He's, he and his people are great business people, I have to say. But the stages were brand new, and there were just lots of possibilities. And also, in the first episode, there's some flashbacks of uh, the new woman in town, uh, Autumn Knight. We're not really sure what's going on, but we see her being a 
abused in the past. We're not really sure where, and it's in a cool color palette and uh, lots of smoke. We used uh, some of the must have been officers' homes uh, on the property of this old army base uh, that are historical. I mean, they're beautiful from the 1800s. Um, so sometimes we would use those homes. Uh, so there were a lot of possibilities on the base and in the outskirts not too far away. Wow. That club was really amazing. I was so excited to be like, I was, I, I was convinced you guys shot in an actual club. I know that is part of the research, and we all right. went to the clubs. And, you know, it's funny, some of the fancier ones did have those moving lights we see in rock concerts, very lights, uh, that's one brand. But um, again, Katori forbid it. <laughs> uh, and also her term for the look of the show, which I loved, was Delta Noir. And she was not afraid of the dark, which was great. So we were urged to embrace bold colors and dark shadows and uh, let the sheen of African-American skin show through, not overpowered, powdered, which they do on many shows today. Right. Uh, and uh, it was such a pleasure to film the variety of skin tones, actually much more interesting than white skin tones. I had a hard time adjusting in my next job, uh, which supposedly was diverse, but you know, we had just been on Pea Valley, which was pretty much except for maybe two people in the whole cast, all African-American. I mean, that's what I loved about it, but there was also so many colorful characters that I lived in Waikiki when I was a teenager and my father had a pizza place right next to the main hub of gay bars. Wow. So when I had started my, you know, your age 14, 15 and your films like a, or your sorry, your life is like a film strip. It was just, I'd see when the term was, I guess, then drag queens or... Right. And I just was taught to, like, never judge or... And we'd go to Thanksgiving and everybody there would be lesbian or homosexual. And we'd be like... They would joke, there's three straight people. And I... As a, you know, as a 15-year-old, I'm like, why are they pointing out my parents? Like, so... That is so great. <laughs> yeah, and I loved that. So when I was watching the show, I was like, that's what those experiences were for. Like for these kind of shows to just kind of not have to open your mind or expand your mind because it's already like there. So I really appreciated that you guys did that. Good. And it was also important, the backstage area where as it were, we pulled back the curtain and really got into how raw it was. It's not for the show. And there's sisterhood and the dressing rooms and there are arguments and, uh, love and uh, not just the fantasy of the lights and smoke and mirrors. I love that. Here, you guys did an amazing job. Oh, <laughs> well, that's uh, that, that, that terrific. It was really fun. That brings me to how does the process for a cinematographer, you mentioned, you know, that you, of course, liked working with the other one. And uh, so, like, are you timing episode one and you 
see some footage of episode two and you're prepping episode three? Like, how does that work? Well, we get time dailies for the most part. So before we start, we are working with our post house on tests. And also we have a DIT on set, a digital imaging technician. And we have this, it's called a LUT, a lookup table, which is sort of like a color grading um, add-on to our raw footage. Because shooting digital, there's like just footage, it's like a negative, it's raw, and you have to put the color and the contrast, the light and dark shades onto the footage, and you send it then through the pipeline, and it gets on our dailies, and goes all the way through posts. So I would have dailies. Uh, we would get them, uh, the studio and uh, the various producers got not the highest res, but we always got higher res stills and made sure that also the director saw the high res stills because that was more representative of what the show would look like. Because once you start sending the other files down the pipeline, they're pretty compressed. Um, so I, we all knew what the show was going to look like. We had tested various kinds of lenses uh, and, in fact, took a lot of uh, leeway with the kinds of lenses. Uh, I used um, what's called detuned. They're uh, older vintage lenses that are not so sharp and modern so there there are imperfections on them which was important because this club and the world in the mississippi delta is not crisp and sharp it's got aberrations and uh, so the kinds of lenses we wanted to use reflected what the environment looked like uh, digital can be really sharp and harsh, and this gave it more of a filmic quality. Oh, okay. There was, um, it, it varied in the kinds of coating on the lenses. So today, depending on what you're filming, you might want those, hot, those fancy, sharp, contrasty lenses, and we went against that for more of a... Uh, an, I won't say always naturalistic, but definitely not perfect uh, quality where each lens has a distinct personality. So this may feel like a 20-year-old question, but we could apply to what you just described about P-Valley. Uh, is there anything that maybe you wouldn't have been able to do when it was film? Like, did you make that jump really quick? Oh, Yes. Because I came up in the New York world and moved to Los Angeles when I was already f shooting, in New York, we had to, uh, in order to stay relevant and working a lot, I not only shot films and music videos, but I shot interviews, video, video, video. It wasn't called digital then. was coming into being and I knew how to work with it. So 
when the switch to digital happened, I'd already worked in the electronic world, so it was an easy jump for me. And I still work when I can in celluloid. I shot the period film Maplethorpe in New York a few years ago uh, that um, Matt Smith played, Robert Maplethorpe. Um, and we chose Super 16 because that's would have been when he was alive and it gave the city a grittiness. And it was a small budget for a period film. Like the, We could only afford, if you look carefully, the same two period cars are in, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a high budget. But um, the Super 16 gave it its character. And uh, what I remarked about at the time, because it had been a few years since I'd shot celluloid, how slow the film stocks are. Uh, the working in digital, you can, I won't say available light because producers would say, well, how come you need so many lights? Because we're creating color and contrast, but with cooler, smaller units. And uh, yet it digital can, on certain cameras, actually see in the dark. Um, so I just remember needing so much more light on Maplethorpe than I remembered and having to pull my light meter out every shot because now I'll pull it out uh, occasionally, but pretty much it's about the monitors and the uh, <clears throat> how uh, it looks on our very highly color-corrected, perfect monitors. I, I love seeing in those documentaries, I think it was, I should, I, someone, oh, side by side with Keanu Reeves. Uh -huh. When they were talking about how the cinematographer was always the only one that knew, right? Mm-hmm. So they had the magic, now it's, whoever the producer allows near the monitor, you don't have to comment, but I was. <laughs> yes, don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely uh, a lot of cooks cooking the right. broth today. Well, and, and that movie Side by Side, I also loved because the editor of the show and I are film school buddies. Oh. And we, we learned 16, like the nanosecond that everything went digital. Wow. So it was like graduate film school, and then nothing shoots on film. Ah. So, so I always find it so interesting for people that got to do it. You go to film school to make films, right? You don't go there to make digitals. <laughs> so, but I always go, hey, that everything happens for a reason, right? That's right. I would I love, love to, to talk, talk about, about your thought process or what kind of some meetings are like with a production designer. The collaboration with the production designer is so key. Uh, I was really thrilled to work with Jeffrey Pratt Gordon on Pea Valley. On Maplethorpe, I got to work with a really fine production designer named Jonah Markowitz. And they are known to dig deep, Deep dive, if you will, that's the 2020 expression, right? 2021 expression, into research, which I love. And no matter what the project, whether it's a documentary or a narrative, for me, I am on the internet. 
I can't believe I was actually around before the internet making films and before cell phones. You know, we managed. And <laughs> now, um, instead of producers always having to send me their treatments, which I still ask for, I, I still want to know their research before I do a project, I'll do my own. And it's just always wonderful with the production designer to discuss the color palette and how it'll change emotionally as a story progresses and uh, working in, especially when you're on a sound stage and you have the opportunity to work with the designer for putting lights into the sets and then I can control them. Everything is controllable now. Uh, we all have um, boards, up boards with operators and because so much is LED now, uh, we can work very quickly. It's very good for the environment. It's very green because there's not a lot of heat. We're not using massive amounts of amperage. So it's good for the actors. And um, so that's the technical part that I love, being able to plan ahead with a designer on the sets and that goes all the way through to you know working on location which I certainly did coming up in New York in independent movies and uh, I came up as a gaffer uh, first as electrician so lighting for me has just always been so important and so expressive and I've had to learn in television how to be fast think on my feet but because I'd worked in documentaries and music videos where the time pressures are quite great, um, I have adapted well to episodic television. Interesting, because that opens up what I was going to ask about. This really would apply to the comeback. The comeback is on HBO Max, and it's like a reality show, but it's a show. So it's like intertwining. It's very, very cool. There's obviously some stuff that's much funnier if you work in the film business, but that just is natural. Right. Uh, Lisa Kudrow, Phoebe from Friends. And I would have watched this show, but at the time I didn't have HBO. Right. So I was really excited to see this on your list because I was like, oh, I never got to watch that. So because you have you got to do all those things and it helped you with film to video, I'm, I've always wondered how someone does a show within a show. Oh, no, that's interesting about uh, the comeback. Because, yes, it was like shooting a reality show. It's funny. So that first season, that was, oh, it's a long time ago. 2000 I think it was 2005. Oh, my goodness. Am I that old? <laughs> I, you know, I still think I'm 30 and I have another 40 years ahead of me. So uh, I, I've often joked, Paul, that I'm going to drop dead on the set when I'm 100. But I've upped it to 104 because Olivia de Havilland passed away this past year at 104. So I thought, if she can oh. do it. But at that time, digital was out, high def. But Lisa didn't want to be shot in high def. It was very harsh. And we actually shot standard def. And I found a beautiful camera made by Panasonic. She was very happy with uh, The thing about the comeback because it was handheld cameras and very, it was not ad-libbed. 
Michael Batcher so, King, uh, if our camera got over to Lisa or to one of the other actors too soon, like it was anticipating something, we had to redo the take because we wanted it to feel like it was happening in the moment, like a documentary. And I'm sure that my years of working in documentaries in Verite helped make that reality because I could help block my operators uh, to be not too fast, not too slow, but just right so that when they got there, it really appeared like it was happening in real time and wasn't staged. I totally thought that that, that some of it was ad-libbed. Nope. <laughs> it was, I, there's the other thing I got out of the show was, again, people will be like, really? I, I wasn't a fan of Friends when it was on. Because I was in high school when it came out, and then I was like in my mid-20s when it went off. So those years, I was just doing what people that age do. So... <laughs> I kind of thought it was it was such a hilarious concept because she's such a great actress yep. and her comedic timing is so amazing that I thought playing this actress who's a has-been, I just was like, this is a great concept. Right. This is brilliant. You had kind of mentioned your documentary background being useful. I've always wondered the way like a, some singers will say, oh, I can only sing because I was a drummer in high school. If you had to pick one of your backgrounds, do you think there's one that's the most present in your work? I grew up in a household where there was a lot of music. Uh, I'm the youngest of three kids, and my brother listened to a lot of jazz. My sister listened to a lot of old rock, and I came up, I was a hippie. So I had all that music from the 60s and 70s. And I was in my element when I got to film music videos. Uh, it just came naturally to me. And I'd also been athletic and danced. So filming a music video was like dancing to me. And I think that was is still a big influence for me and why Pea Valley was so much fun. Um, in terms of my background in lighting, I've had a long history with two filmmakers out of the Bay Area, Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman, the first one being Celluloid Closet quite a long time ago. And uh, the most recent was Linda Ronstadt's Sound of My Voice that was uh, produced by James Keach. I have always been hired by Rob and Jeff to especially film celebrities. Pretty much every film I've shot for them, everyone has had celebrities because I came out of narrative and it was important how these actors look in my movies and I translated those skills, or I do translate them, into interviews. I enjoy making actors happy. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Something to have on your resume. <laughs> especially women. And so when uh, the Linda Ronstadt film came around and we were filming 
Dolly Parton and Emmy Lou Harris, Bonnie Raitt. I remember their handlers asked the producers, you know, well, who's filming them? Because they care. They're of a certain age, if you will. And so I had already filmed Bonnie Raitt and sent a little clip. She was happy to know that I had already filmed her a few years ago in a documentary called Women Who Rock. And so it just uh, was fun for me to make them happy. And yet when I have a, a movie where they're not supposed to look good, I always talk to them about how I plan to light them because some actors, no matter what, just don't want to look like shit. (laughs) So it just depends on uh, the character and what they're comfortable with. So Well, I loved that Linda Ronstadt doc, by the way. It's good, isn't it? Oh, it's so brilliant. Yeah. Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt, I didn't discover and get into until like the last year of my life. But I've been studying music constantly and listening to music constantly for like 20 years. I was like, why did nobody ever tell me to listen to Emmy Lou Harris? Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was at the concert where she was in a Boy Scout uniform at the Universal Amphitheater. Yes. So she's like, I watched it with my mom. She's like, oh, that's so great. And I'm like, why did you never tell me to listen to this person? Like, of all the Almond Brothers bands conversations and Elton John, and we have the same playlist. I'll grab her computer. And I'm like, she's listening to the same thing as me yesterday. And I'm like, you never said listen to this. So. But kudos, I loved that you were saying, like, you got to show so many fun people in that movie. Like, oh, for sure. What the heck was it like to talk music with Cameron Crowe? He is such a genius and such a lovely guy. So that was real. That was so much fun. Uh, that was one of our last ones we did. I was glad he was available. But I'm happy that Linda has gotten some place in the history of music i mean her range who knew she could sing opera and those the mexican songs of her ancestors um it was really educational and also breaks my heart every time i see the film i cry because uh she's still so upbeat uh, even though she has Parkinson's and hasn't been able to sing for a very long time. Fortunately, we have this great record of her, and too many people don't know her history and how she broke down so many barriers back in the day. That that was a really amazing job that you guys did, and I was just floored Right. once it got to, like, opera and... Right. Uh, I did relate to, um, like, I actually started crying, too, because... My dad's from the Midwest and my mother's Mexican. Right. So, so you have really the same hit. background. Yeah. Hank Williams and hearing mariachi music, most people don't throw those on back to back. That's what. <laughs> uh, even though, like, the song when it's singing by the tree, he's sitting by the tree and he's looking at a woman and doesn't know if he can talk to her. I'm just like, that sounds like a Hank Williams song. Oh, Celluloid Closet. Celluloid Closet. It reminds me, because you were asking earlier about the production design DP uh, relationship, and I had met Rob and Jeff, 
and we were talking about what to do about the backgrounds. And to this day, they still kid me. I said, I just can't light air. I need something to light. So, no, you can't light air. Give me a background. And so we were able to hire a production designer, Scott Chamberless, who's gone on to do amazing work. And uh, it's funny. It's pretty dated when I see it now, the color. <laughs> it was, that, oh, was right. regular, that was 16 mil. It was my camera. We blew it up. Wasn't even, oh, it was 16 mil. Okay, I was going to ask what that was. It wasn't even super 16. It was just regular 16. But I look now, and it's got this intense blue that was so much of the period. I think we must have shot that early 90s. And um, I had already worked with Shirley MacLaine uh, early in my career when I was gaffer. I went to China with her, and so she heard I was shooting. She was on her way to the stage, self-driving, and uh, Rob put me on the phone with her. She said, oh, Nancy, hello. I know you're going to keep that camera high and the key light low. She, these actors know how they look and what they want. i never forget she said that. <laughs> I love it. Also, I, I did a film uh, called Serious Moonlight. It was actually during the writer's strike. Um, Cheryl Hines directed, it was with Meg Ryan and Tim Hutton and Kristen Bell. It had been written by Adrian Shelley, who directed Waitress, and she was tragically murdered. Oh, I love that movie. Sorry to hear. Yes, it was terrible. But there was this script, and because she was no longer alive, we were able to film it during the writer's strike. And I remember... I was lit, this one living room where the Meg Ryan character has a country house, and she brings out a mirror, and she's looking around the mirror to see how her face looks in the light. These actors know how they look. That's what I mean about I want to please them, because they know. And uh, another time, it was for... Uh, a quilt film. It was not the Rob Jeff quilt film, but it was another film that Liz Taylor was in, and we went to her home, and she had her people around, uh, and I remember they had me put the camera like on the ceiling, looking down at Liz, so you know you couldn't see any chin, you know, neck. <laughs> it was so funny. Seriously, I was way up. She was on a chaise lounge. It sounds like studio system stuff. Yeah, totally. But it happens, and they have their handlers, and they know. Well, and you had a, uh, let's see, an and the Oscar goes to and Celluloid Closet both had Whoopi. Mm -hmm. And uh, Celluloid Closet, uh, I, okay, so we're in some, obviously just, I think that it said it was 95 or something, a couple of years after Philadelphia. So. Oh, right. Is there anything new for you that you can, like, just, you have a piece of work where the relevance has, like, multiplied times 10? What does that feel like? Well, what's interesting about Celluloid Closet, it was so long ago, and there were so few films with people that were in relationships that weren't heterosexual. So that Celluloid Closet was like the history at that point of gays in the cinema. 
and so much has changed since 95. Uh, in fact, in 85, Donna Deitch made a film called Desert Hearts that was pretty much the first female love story, two women. And I am going to be filming her for a New Zealand filmmaker this week. Don is an old friend and she begged me to come do it. Uh, we're doing a live Zoom to New Zealand, very technically crazy to be doing it live on video and not on a computer, but on a real camera that then they look at each other in, on a laptop. But wow. um, yeah, and uh, I was thinking about that because it's the documentaries about the female gaze. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, so Donna's film was 85 and I don't know, it wasn't in the celluloid closet, it should have been. But, um, yeah, a lot has changed. It was just amazing. I just, everyone, you guys got to watch Celluloid Closet. It just seems so, even to, even to someone my age, it seems so weird when you see some of the stuff that was said. And, yeah. And I, 70s films, I'm such a nut for 70s films. So I was just like, how did I miss these? Well, that's the point of the documentary. Right. I appreciated that aspect. You, you mentioned, mentioned your, your love, love of music, music. Or, and the music in your house, but I love asking artists this question. When you film or in any part of your process, do you feel like you approach more as a scientist or do you approach more as a jazz musician? For me, it's a ja I'm a jazz musician. Um, I am a nice Jewish girl from the Midwest that I became an electrician shocked my mother, I mean, it was like, Nancy, you don't even know how to plug in a phone, barely. And I am a technician and a creative person. I come to light through instinct and through an art background, not technology. I've certainly had to learn, you know, especially, you know, going from film to digital and the digital world, things change. You know, every day we get new lenses. So I have made myself learn it and I enjoy that I can, but I'm definitely a jazz musician. And if I had all day to light a set, I would take all day. Uh, but at some point, I mentioned I learned to work in television, you have to be quick and you have to learn to let go of perfection. That can be hard. But um, I fortunately also work with such great crews that uh, are much more technically oriented than I am. And so uh, I'm grateful for the partnership. And we are not alone. We have large crews. I have 11 usually in my camera crew. And uh, Grip Electric, that can be huge. You know, I have three departments, camera, grip, and electric. And... Uh, I am so grateful for the expertise they all show, and I try to cast my crew like one would cast a film or a television show, because you want to hang out with people who are kind and doing good things for the planet and being there to create, and yet you could hang out with them after work, hopefully. I love it. Do you have a, uh, would you think there was a project that helped your sensibilities in P-Valley? Okay, so it did not relate directly, but 
I have filmed for HBO Real Sex as well as Cat House. When I lived in New York, we cinematographers coming up had 16 millimeter cameras and Sheila Nevins at HBO thought that Real Sex, which was apparently a very popular show on HBO, more people have seen my work on that than had most of my indies. <laughs> I was going to say, I can't, I have to Google what year it was made before I say I've seen it. Yeah, no, it was a long time ago. But there were these episodes and you would go in and film people in the sex industry and nothing can shock me anymore about filming sex and I think that might have helped through all the nudity I did film um, and that was just uh, crazy so you know people were interested to hear that I had worked on especially Cat House which is uh, a brothel in Nevada and that was such a shock when I first got there and then it was like okay whatever and uh, so <laughs> it's made me much less of a Midwestern prude when, uh, <laughs> you know. I, I, just so, stop bringing up things I can't jump to say I'd watch. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I, no, no. No, and, uh, I never watched those shows, but people did uh, back yeah. in the day. And uh, Sheila wanted us to film sex on film, not video. So she hired many of us with our 16 cameras, and also that gave us extra money back in the day um, for HBO. But um, I think my music videos, just because I got, I've gotten to work with creative lighting and color in music videos, it allowed me today you know, to work on a show like Pea Valley uh, where anything goes as long as it fits what the environment should be uh, according to Katori Hall because her vision as a creator of Pea Valley was extraordinary and I feel really blessed to have worked with her and all of the women we all had we had women directors and uh, six of my eleven on that show were women on my camera department and I had people of color in the grip and electric departments so we really tried for true diversity and uh, I'm really proud of that because this is how that, the world looks. That's so fantastic because I think I had to have been at the ASC dinner when you got the President's Award. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was quite moving and uh, you know I'm I just keep going, Paul, because I don't know any better, and it's in my blood. And I have friends my age who are retiring, and I'm not done. I'm totally not done, and I'm still doing documentaries, still doing narrative. Uh, if it's moving, I'll film it. I love it. <laughs> I totally love it. I totally love it. I have a lot of friends who are the uh, you know that generation from the 60s or 70s and I've always gotten along with them better and I've because I've always just been like oh I, I was talking one time about like I'm gonna I wonder what I'm gonna do when I retire and they were like what are you talking about 
What's a reti- retiring? What's yeah, that? they were just like, you? They're like, sure, take care of health, have a surgery, whatever, yada yada is always more important, but uh, don't ask me about retirement because I wouldn't give you any advice. So I try to live that. I know I can be a little bit on the lazy side sometimes, but I totally admire that uh, you're very close, or my dad's very close to your age. And like sometimes since he's retired, like he'll do more in a day than when he worked. Right. And so I'm just like, I, I was telling him yesterday, I'm like, hey, take a nap. He's like, why? I'm like, well, because you look really tired, like you're going to fall over. <laughs> if if no other reason, then we don't want to go to the ER with you. Take a nap. <laughs> I'm like, that's do it for me, Dad. Well, I I got to my I got to boot camp. I usually go at seven thirty in the morning. It overlooks the ocean. I'm in Santa Monica, but I had to go to the six a.m. this morning. I did take a nap. I'm a big napper, but then it keeps me focused and energetic. And you know, a lot of people that retire have strokes and they. Don't keep going on and so I'm glad to hear your dad is more active. Oh yeah. Well it's also because he's a Marine and he thinks Right. Marines don't stop. And I'm just like I tried to tell him that Adam Driver quit a movie set. He's like, Nope, he's a Marine. He wouldn't quit any movie set. Uh, is that he's like, there's I didn't nothing. Know that. Oh my god. Yeah, he's a and he's only thirty seven. Oh like, goodness. So my amazing. brother was a Marine and he oh, keeps thank you. going. Yeah. I'm full of them on both sides of the family. Um, huh. Grandfather, father, uncle. My cousin's actually a captain right now. Whoa. I'm glad that he's out. That's pretty much going to do it for our questions. And we really, again, appreciate the time and you coming on and being open with us today, Nancy. It's been my great pleasure, Paul. And I always look forward to seeing who's on your show because you have such a great range of people and I always learn something. Oh, I, you know, I really appreciate that. And thank you. Cause we really try to have not only diverse, but also just jump around and not be like, Oh, it's another film festival. or It's another, this, we just want to be open to everything. So thank you for saying that. We appreciate that. Well, keep on keeping on. Hey, that's, That's all good. Thank you. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Take care. You have a great night. And you too. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. Well, we want to thank Nancy Schreiber ASC again for coming on the show. And we hope you guys enjoyed it. All right. Well, we just discussed the celluloid closet, which you can find on Amazon Prime. The comeback with Lisa Kudrow is on HBO Max. Linda Ronstadt doc. Check that one out on HBO Max. And of course, P-Valley, available on stars. Well, you know my motto, whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening, make sure and watch a good movie. Aloha. Thank you for listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast. Real conversation and movie-induced inspiration.